Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Hello there, listeners. After over two years of recording and 80 plus episodes, I am elated to announce that Enduro Bearings has agreed to become a supporter of the Cycling in Alignment podcast. This is a double win for you, the audience. You have the opportunity to demonstrate your support of the show by making a purchase on the website cycling.endurobearings.com and you get to save some dollars while you trick out your whip. Use the code Colby Podcast to receive a 35% discount on any of Enduro Bearings' excellent products. That's Colby Podcast, which is all lowercase and all one word. This includes the excellent XD15 ceramic bottom bracket, which is guaranteed for life. That means it may outlive you because, well, it's inanimate. Enduro also makes headsets, derailleur pulleys, as well as bearings for just about everything that rotates on a bicycle. So use your digits to make the keyboard mudras and head over to cycling.endurobearings.com and upgrade your favorite ride now. And remember, the proper number of bicycles is always N plus one. So think ahead. Thanks for listening. Hey there, space monkeys. Welcome to Cycling in Alignment. This is episode 83. Today's conversation is with Sebastian Weber, the grand wizard of inside. If you don't know what inside is, buckle your seatbelts and keep your pants on because we're going to explain all about it. I won't introduce the introduction too much more. I'm going to let us get on to the conversation with Sebastian. Please enjoy. Well, Sebastian Weber, thank you so much for joining me on Cycling in Alignment today. Thanks, Colby. Thanks for having me. It's great to be on the show. Yeah. Um, it's a privilege. So maybe we could start by, uh, I'd like to ask you to introduce yourself and tell the audience a bit about who you are and, and a little bit about Inside and how Inside came to be. <laughs> yeah. So, um, well, about myself. So I'm, uh, I'm, I was born in Germany. I live in Switzerland, uh, basically because, um, you know, the work with the cyclists, with the pro cyclists, uh, brought me to this country a little bit south of 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 Germany. Um, we have a lot of, um, especially German speaking pro cyclists living here. So I was, I was a coach in professional cycling teams for about ten years, um, from 2016 to 2000, uh, from 2006 from, to 2016, and because there are so many riders here, I moved, I moved down here. Um, and then stayed here. I don't work in professional teams anymore. Uh, I still have one rider uh, who, who I coach, uh, but besides that, uh, as you indicated, my main work is with is with Inside, um, which is uh, you know basically a software company providing a physiological analysis tool to two different sports. So, my by training, my background is uh, sports science and uh, human biology, but uh, so from university, so to speak. But um, yeah, I started, I started working with 
the then former T-Mobile team as a head coach in 2006. And then this became, as some people might still know, uh, but, uh, you know, some time ago um, became HTC High Road and Columbia and so on and so forth. So um, that's kind of where I started. And then in 2016, stopped um, also because of family reason. My son was born in 2015 and I had like, I don't know, 180 travel days and just didn't want to do it anymore that way. And also there was already the idea or the first pre-version of what is now known as Insight. And it was quite, uh, it was quite exciting, right? So when already in 16, we did have, so, so the software launched in 2017 and, and in 2016, we already had a contract with the INSEP, which is like the French organization for Olympics and high performance sports who wanted to use it for, for swimming. Um, so many of your listeners who have heard about Insight might associate Insight with like cycling testing and power testing. But, you know, as I said, uh, we originally launched uh, primarily in swimming and other sports. And we still work uh, a lot in other sports. So just yesterday I returned from a trip from the German Skiing Federation, for example. And um, there's a lot a lot we do in, yeah, in, in other sports, which are non-cycling and especially in sport, which can't measure power output, so to speak. Mm -hmm. uh, things are a little bit different. Mm -hmm. Okay. Interesting. So swimming, um, skiing, I assume you're talking about Nordic cross-country and skate skiing? Yes. Uh, also biathlon, uh, Nordic combination, but we also do cross and alpine. Um, we do speed mm -hmm. skating, um, roller skating, uh, canoeing, rowing, running. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. I did a little bit in, in work in team sports like football and stuff, but currently we focus on the, you know, let's say a sport where you can have a time or distance component to it. Yeah. So that's, that's where, where we feel home currently. But cycling being the most um, data centric because we have power, of course, um, running is the only other sport currently with a power meter other than I suppose rowing, of course, but rowing canoeing. You only have it indoor canoeing has a power meter. Canoeing has power meters. Yes. Well, that makes sense. It's just a lever. It's probably really easy to make a power meter for a canoe. I don't know. Well, maybe not. But. The distance traveled is difficult <laughs> to measure Fair that. Enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, measuring force is one thing. Uh -huh. um, now, the difference also in those sports is, and cycling is pretty easy because in a perfect world, like for example, you are on the TT bikes and your upper body has a tension of a dead fish, right? So, it's not <laughs> much going on in terms of muscle, muscular work in the upper body. So, what I'm trying mm. to go here is that all your you know, all your effort is captured by the power meter, which is measuring in the legs. Now, this is not the case, for example, in canoeing, where you measure, yeah, you can measure at the pedal, but then everything that's going on, you know, trying to find a better counterforce uh, with the lower legs and the boat and stuff mm -hmm. like that, it's it's not captured. Or cross-country skiing, right? There's power meters in the poles, but obviously it only captures some effort from the upper body and not the effort right. from the from the from lower the feet, so, the legs. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's not quite easy, but this is where you know where we are with this inside a very good place because we can actually do testing totally independent of that. So we're mm -hmm. kind of independent of the power meters, um, like in swimming or in canoeing or in speed skating. Yep. We don't need power meters. Um, and cycling is a nice to have and makes things easier. But as I indicated, the origin comes from having no power data and mm -hmm. creating a physiological profile of an athlete. Okay, cool. So I definitely want to unpack uh, the measurements that you take and the meaning behind those, but maybe we can take a brief sidestep. Uh, I mean, thinking about it, like you mentioned in a time trial, you know, perfect world, the rider is driving the bike 
with the legs and the upper body has the tension of a dead fish, as you said. So, <laughs> and the, one of the biggest reasons for that is of course, that a, a quiet upper body is going to be more aerodynamic, right? If the, if the head's moving, the chin's moving, the shoulders are moving excessively, especially when a rider's in aero bars, then the path of the bike won't be straight. It'll be kind of snaking down the road, which will scrub speed and also add distance, which is something I don't right. think a lot of people pay attention to. No, um, no, exactly. but, if, but if you watch and, someone on the track, you see immediately the penalty, right? Immediately. Yes. If somebody does yes. an hour record and they're riding above the black line, they're doing 252 meters a lap, not 250. Exactly. Exactly. And by the way, that's also the case in swimming, for example, right? Like you, like what you'd measure, you'd, you don't measure the distance swim. Uh, you just say it's 50 meters in an Olympic pool, but if it's effectively 52 meters, you know, it's not captured. <laughs> right, right. It's the same thing. You're swimming left and right. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yes. And of course, in cycling, you want to be, as you said, in a time trial, you want to be as aerodynamic as possible. So if that, if that costs extra energy from the upper body, then, you know, it might actually be beneficial. Right. If you have actively whatever holding your head down or shrugging your shoulders, even though it maybe takes a lot of energy, it can actually be faster, of course. Right. But then we contrast that with, for example, cross country mountain biking, where or cyclocross, I mean, not including the parts where the rider's running or or dismounting or remounting, but even just the extremely steep, short, punchy climbs where the rider has to really use global fascial tension to, you know push down with the leg and then pull with the bars and they're engaging all the paraspinal musculature and the right. lats and the everything to right. drive the bike. But of course that energy is not captured. It would drive up VO2. It would drive up, uh, sugar consumption would, would excellent, excellent point. Excellent point. If you look at studies looking at what they call gross efficiency in cycling, but unfortunately without going too much into rabbit hole in most cases is not gross efficiency, just the relationship between measured oxygen and measured power output on the pedals. Mm -hmm you would see people saying, ah, oh, but there's a difference in gross efficiency. For example, when you are on an aero bike or, or like you say, on a mountain bike or something. And it's normally not really a difference in, in, in gross efficiency. It's just that you have, like you, like you indicated, additional tissue consuming oxygen because you mm -hmm. have other body movements, which is obviously then not captured in your you know, power meter in the cranks or whatsoever. Um, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. Right? It's not necessarily bad to have a higher oxygen consumption because think about it. For example, when you talk about lactate combustion, lactate is combusted in the aerobic metabolism. So when you have more muscle mass involved in the upper body, which is you know maybe not working super hard for a very long time, so oxygen uptake in upper body muscle goes up. Therefore, these muscles can combust lactate, which is supposedly produced more in the leg muscles. Um, you know, then it's actually not a bad thing, right? Mm -hmm. So right. um, as long as, so, so to speak, you are um, not, you know, not limited by your cardiovascular system to get the oxygen to the upper body, which is in most people not really a limiting factor, except for some very, very high trained maybe. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't matter, right? It can actually be a benefit if you have additional oxygen consumption. It doesn't look very good in the lab, so to speak, when you, when you look at the relationship between, between, um, yeah, auction uptake and power output. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And so the other really good example, I, ha I had this discussion just recently with a few clients where they have the perception that even simply riding your road bike on a climb, if you stand, it's less efficient, air quotes, right? And they have, so they are, I seem to be running into riders who don't want to stand on climbs because they've been told or they've learned or they think that it's less efficient for them to stand up. And my point is always, well, yeah, 
yet, you know, and, and the logic they'll use is my power goes up and my heart goes up a lot. And maybe they're not looking very precisely at this relationship. Okay, that's fine. But the bottom line is, if you look at the business end of any bike race, like anytime anyone really attacks or wins a race, they're almost always out of the saddle, at least for a significant right. portion of that moment. So right. in order to go as fast as possible in any moment, we stand. It's just how cycling works, right? Um, yes. I don't know. Because because it is, I mean, without going to the different definition of what efficient means, but because you can, to avoid the word efficient, because you can create more power or you can stay mm -hmm. at, the at the same power for a longer time, Yep. right? And I mean, it's quite logical when you say, I can create more power riding out of the saddle. It's quite logical that the, that the heart rate is higher. Right. That also happens when I jump from 100 watts to 150 watts. Also, the heart rate is higher, but I have more power. So, you know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the question would be, why worry? I mean, you know, why would you worry about your heart rate being higher? I think it often comes from a misperception that you think, oh, my training zone X, Y, that is Z or this heart rate zone. And I should not leave that zone. But that zone is determined based on seated riding. Mm -hmm. right? And from a training perspective, for example, you, can, you, you could argue, you could say that, yeah, you know, um, adaptations to the heart muscle, um, you know, heart muscle adaptation works pretty good as a function, for example, of tension you know, muscular tension of the heart muscle. So if you have higher heart rates and you you jump, like you jump from a lower heart rate to a higher, that goes with a with a shift in, in, in tension. Um, so, you know, it could actually be good for, for adaptation, right? And yeah, I don't see the point. Like, like when, when from a more anecdotal approach, so to speak, or angle, I would, I could tell you that when I was, you know, as I mentioned earlier, still coaching um, in professional teams, um, we would, of course, use that. So I would prescribe, you know, uh, intervals on a, on a climb mm -hmm. and prescribe how much time out of the saddle, how much time in the saddle. Mm -hmm. Or especially, like you, you said, the race decisive moments often include riding out of the saddle. So what I would prescribe would be go out of the saddle at intensity X, whatever, right? Whatever was the goal of the training, right out of the saddle. And you know that you have this feeling when you want to go back, right? When it seems to be more comfortable to go back in the saddle. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like you're out of the saddle and it's really exhausting. You're really pushing it. And then you're feeling, oh, I need to go. I want to go back in the saddle. And then you basically sit down again. So what I would prescribe you know, is you wait for that moment and then you ride 10 seconds longer out of the saddle. Okay. To you know, try to become more comfortable riding yep. out of the saddle when you are already exhausted and you already feel like, okay, now it's time to sit mm -hmm. down again mm -hmm. um, to really improve that ability to be able to ride out of the song or settle longer when it's needed. Mm -hmm. And really, I think part of the concept there that I try to illustrate to my clients is that it's about load sharing because when you're, when you're seated for a long period of time and you have high degree of muscular tension, um, depending on your position and your flexibility, especially you know, I do a lot of bike fitting. So I see athletes who are very quad dominant. So their strategy to make power is just smash quads, smash quads, smash quads. And maybe their saddle's really forward, maybe their saddle's really high. So that's going to spin up or upregulate more quad dominance. So they do a 20 minute effort and basically their quads are screaming and everything else is quiet. And to right. me, this is sort of inducing a rate limiting factor in the performance because those muscle fibers are fatiguing or they're, those muscles specifically are uh, really struggling with the effort, then we can stand to load share and we can begin to introduce some load into other muscles and distribute right. the load around the system. Right. Right. Um, so part of the strategy is to set up the bike fit so that you're not 
exclusively mechanically dependent or maybe not dependent, but you're not, you're not, you're not favoring quadriceps as your strategy, but then you also have to educate the rider about what they're doing, which means filming them and showing them and then doing off the bike work to, you know, turn on their glutes and, and illustrate what it's like. And so it's a very intricate and complicated process. But then when you have that breakthrough and the rider goes up a climb for the first time and they get to the top of a, a big steep hill and they're not, their quads aren't smoked. Instead, they've got this general lower limb fatigue. It's like a, it can be a huge breakthrough in performance because if the quads are always the rate limiting factor, then you're never going to be that you're right. never going to hit your ceiling, your potential, right? You're not going to be metabolically limited. You so need to, to speak, distribute right? the load over a bigger muscle mass, basically. Right. That's what you're trying to do. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Makes so, sense. Cool. Uh, okay. So maybe now we can, we can get a bit into VO2 max and VLA max and, and speak about how inside works. Uh, what, I mean, what's the big deal? Tell, tell the audience, please, if you would, why we should care about VLA max. What, what's the defining characteristic of this physiological but, parameter? Uh, now I'm a little bit disappointed because I, I thought when you said, what's a big deal? I thought, what is a big deal about inside? But you meant the big deal oh. about, inside, about VLA max. <laughs> well, um, sorry, I was getting to the same point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because, because I was just like, oh yeah, it's good that you asked that because this is what people so often think, right? They think like, yeah, inside is about VLA max and this is like, or maybe VO, VO2 max and VLA max. And that's not really, it's it's just one metric that, you know, that we capture, um, you know. Um, so the idea behind inside is really to have this, you know, complete metabolic profile and, and really a complete understanding on how the, the metabolism of an athlete works and especially what is often overlooked, how these different systems interact each other. So you could say, for example, you now how and why a higher VO2 max facilitates better fat combustion, for example. Right, so understanding the mechanics in a quantitative way to understand, okay, how much do I need to improve my VO2 max to, for example, increase my fat combustion? And VLA max, to come back to your question, um, was uh, is 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 part of that, right? So um, you know, most people know their VO2 max, which is so to speak, the maximum rate of aerobic energy production, right? So mm-hmm. you could imagine that. There's aerobic energy production in the muscle, specifically in the mitochondria happening, and there's no direct way to measure it, right? You don't have the ability to stick a sensor into the mitochondria and while you're riding your bike and measure real-time ATP turnover. Um, but the good thing is that the aerobic ATP, the aerobic energy production, is proportional to oxygen uptake, pretty much, pretty much proportional. So this is why, since decades, people have used, you know, um, VO2 uptake. Uh, to get a better understanding on what is the aerobic energy comp- uh, you know, production rate. That's mm-hmm. th- that's what it is. And VLA max, so to speak, is the same thing just for the glycolytic part. So in glycolysis, the rate of energy production is proportional, pretty much proportional, not exactly, but pretty much proportional to the amount of lactate that is produced. Mm-hmm. And that for many people is something new, uh, but you know, in the scientific world, uh, rate lactate production rates, or you know, have been used for decades to understand what is uh, glycolytic energy release. Like, if you mm-hmm. look at studies trying to understand, you know, what is the energy contribution in a whatever three-minute all-out effort. You know, um, looking at rate of of lactate production has always been something people have been doing. So um, it was just not so, so to speak, so popular to the public, but. 
you know, for example, I just mentioned that I started in 2006 uh, as a coach with, with T-Mobile. In 2002, I developed a sprint test on a bike ergometer to measure VLMX and used it in, 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 in training and testing. And this testing concept and the ability to distinguish between aerobic and, and anaerobic power production, so to speak, was, was actually part of what you know, got me the job at T-Mobile. And we did this ever since. Right, so mm -hmm. I do have VLMX values back in the days from Tony Martin, Bradley Wiggins, Kevin Just Saga, and Greipel, whatsoever. So it's not something that just came out of nowhere, so to speak. Right, so it has been around for quite a long time, um, but I think just in the last years it maybe got more and more popular. Okay, my impression at least. And so, but part of the reason that VLMX has you know not been so popular also has been accessibility, right? Because Prior to inside, the only way to really tease out this data was to go to a lab and have a full metabolic cart workup with lactate. Is that correct? Right? Uh, no, because then you would still not fetch the anaerobic, you know, energy production. So, uh, right. yes, you could you could do a step test and hook you up to a metabolic cart and measure lactate, but then you get lactate concentration, not lactate production, in submaximum conditions. And right, what right, VLMX right. really yeah. is is is, is lactate production as a proxy for energy production in in a maximum sprint effort. So, mm -hmm. so the original protocol going back again to 2002 was a 15 second all out sprint test with a very, very strict protocol, um, you know, resting before and after. And especially something that's overlooked, people trying to utilize this uh, concept is the gearing. Mm -hmm. Right, because you you can tell, like from your own experience, right? If I ask you to do a maximum sprint in whatever thirty nine twenty one or fifty three eleven, your max power and the average power will be vastly different. Yes. So that changes everything, mm -hmm. and that's something that unfortunately is overlooked. That was baked in, or that was included in the original protocol. But you know, as it goes, like you know, copy mm -hmm. paste and these kind of deep, so to speak, quote unquote details, uh, got mm -hmm. for get forgotten. But yeah, it's true that that. It wasn't popular, you know. There, there are many studies utilizing, as I said, uh, lactate production rate for decades, but in terms of a practical application in sport, in the sport of cycling, um, I think it's fair to say that 2002, 2003 was like the starting point of that. Okay, and that's a great point you make about cadence. Uh, I mean, to me, even listening to some of your other discussions, you know, with with uh, Trevor Connor and Chris Case on Fast Talk Labs, you did one episode on intervals and and you brought up the point at one point they were talking about the terminology or the colloquialism of VO two work and five minute intervals. And <laughs> yeah. you were pointing out that, you know, unless we specify the recovery interval between the efforts, we don't really know what impact it's going to have on the athlete. Yes. And the same can be said for cadence. And it amazes me how many coaches, if you're a coach and you're doing this shame on you, I'm going to yell at you right now. Like <laughs> it's like going to the gym and just telling someone to do 20 squats. This is the yeah. same for me. This is the same analogous situation. I can tell someone to do 20 squats or, or eight squats and put the bar on and tell them to fail at number eight or almost fail at number eight. But that doesn't tell me anything about how the athlete's strategy is in making that those reps. Um, some athletes will put a lot of weight on and they'll move it very, very quickly. They might be yes. one second per rep. So total time yeah. under tension is eight or 10 seconds for the set. Yes. Most cyclists exactly. would move much more slowly than that. And this is a completely different exercise. You're working potentially different energy systems. You're having different impact on the organism. Then does the athlete sit there and surf Instagram for three minutes in between the sets? 
or do they immediately move to another exercise, a totally different yep. physiological effect. Yep. This is the same with intervals. This is the same with cadence, right? So, and yes. this goes to your point about the protocol with inside testing, which we can unpack a bit if you'd like, um, and how you're very specific in educating the coaches and the athletes on the protocol and how they need to stay seated during the intervals. Because when they stand, just as we spoke about, <clears throat> it introduces a variable that the software will then not account for. And then that introduces, please correct me if my language is incorrect, but or inaccurate. It introduces um, vari variability into the system, into the test that will just give you inaccurate results, which is obviously not the point. Yeah. And it's, it's not so much that theory we would not be able to cope with riding out of the saddle. I mean, there's some research that shows the physiological differences between riding in the saddle off the saddle. It's more a question what you want to use the data for. So yeah. most people do physiological testing to use the data to make informed decision about the training. So I always say like, if more than 50% of your training time is out of the saddle, then please feel free to test out of the saddle. Uh, but right. if, 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 if the majority of the time that you're spending on your bike is in the saddle, then you should test in the saddle. Right. <laughs> it's, it's like that. <laughs> um, and then you don't want to mix that's right. You don't want to mix the effort. So what is, you know, what you should not do is say, I do an effort of whatever, five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, three minutes, whatsoever, which is, let's say, 100% or 95% seated, and then mix that with a power output, um, you know, 20 seconds all out, which is, which is maybe 18 seconds out of the saddle. Mm -hmm. And this is unfortunately something that is often baked in, for example, in power duration curves, right? Because there's mm -hmm. no filter for that, right? Um, right. So a drop, let's say, from you know your max power of five seconds, let's say to your max power of 30 seconds, is partly not because the time is longer and your power output drops. It's partly because you're riding in the saddle versus out of the saddle. Right. 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 And um, yeah, in a power duration curve, you would not necessarily see that. But in inside, we do have this you know kind of self auditing system which compares the different effort and kind of flags and visualizes you know when the efforts are, don't don't fit and don't make sense mm -hmm. and to whatever that reason is right you're not following the protocol very strict or you know your power meter drifts at the high power outputs or you know yeah. i don't know what one was one was done indoors one effort one effort was done outdoors there's a distinguisher difference right in power between indoors and outdoors one was on a climb one was on a flat so all yeah. these things that 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 affect your power output mm -hmm. um you want to you want to test as clean as possible, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you want to get as accurate, as much accurate data as possible. Like you need to compare to to lab testing, right? You would not go on a lab test and say, I do, like you indicated a step test or maybe a step test and a view to max test or a Wingate test and say, oh, you know, one part of the test I do out of the saddle, one part of the test I do in the saddle, one part of the test I do an ergometer A, and another part I do an ergometer B. Right. That's not how it works. We would not do that, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and nobody in the lab would allow you to do that right? for, for a good reason. And this is what we try to do. We try to, you know, have a, as clean as possible testing protocol so that the mm -hmm. data is as accurate as possible. It's, um, yeah, many things going through my head. I mean, it reminds me of, I grew up racing in Colorado and, and, you know, one of the, com the confounding variables for a power test here, if I'm going to do a 20 or 30 or 40 minute test, a longer test is that I can gain easily, you know, a thousand or 1500 meters potentially 
So then your altitude's changing during the test. So how do you factor in that during the effort that's challenging? But yes, I grew up here racing with uh, Jonathan Vodders and he, you know, very early in his career, he, he had a hill near his home in Denver and he called it his test hill. And it was like every Friday before the Saturday morning Mount Evans hill climb or whatever he was doing, he would go on that hill and he kind of had this very imprecise, I mean, before power meters, uh, before we got our first power meters from, uh, thanks to Audrey Van Diemen's recommendation, I don't know how JB found him and we ended up buying the first SRMs known to man pretty much, but this was back in 1994 before that point, he would go on his test Hill and he would ride up this climb. It was probably, it wasn't anything big. It was just a rolling Hill outside of Denver, but it was a very subjective test, but he knew that if he could go up the Hill in his big chain ring, uh, and have it feel easy that then the legs were good for the next day. Right. (laughs) But if it was a struggle to go up this Hill, then it was like, Ooh, things are, I need to go home and eat more pasta or something. I don't know. He had some, you know, some routine. Some routine that he would adhere yeah. to. Yeah, wears luck, lucky socks the next day or something like that. <laughs> but I mean, it brings the point that if you are going to use a power your power meter on your road bike and ostensibly use that to mark your progress and use it for long-term insight into how you are actually progressing, then you can be smart about it. You can use the same climb, your same local hill. Right. And you can do the test, perform the test in the same way. And then, then at least we're starting to minimize some of the variables that are going to introduce the types of unpredictability we get in a power curve. I think everyone is subject to sort of as an, as an older athlete, I'm subject to revisionist optimization of my data, otherwise known as the older I am, the faster I was, (laughs) but, uh, but even within a season, people will go and they'll smash one effort and it'll be out of the park. And then they cling to that, you know, desperate number of whatever it was, 372 watts for 20 minutes, et cetera, not recognizing that, yeah, okay, maybe they forgot to check the zero offset on their power meter that day and it was a little chilly or whatever. And then, yeah, okay, I stood up and sat down and stood up and sat down and then whatever. I had the perfect rabbit in the last kilometer. And so that number is an outlier. And then uh, now I'm comparing that to, oh, by the way, I have an SRM on my road bike and a stages on my gravel bike and a, who knows what on my mountain bike. So all these, I guess what we're highlighting is all these things introduce this sort of unpredictability or maybe an accuracy in your, in your mean maximal power curve that we just have to be realistic about these numbers. And what's the danger of that is if you are clinging to that number, that is an outlier and maybe, or maybe is not accurate. Well, outlier by definition means it should be questioned because if you can never repeat it, then yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, come on. It's unlikely. Yeah. It's unlikely. So we just have to use the the kiss principle, right? It's like, or maybe Occam's razor would be a better analogy. It's like, okay, this was 20 watts better than I've ever done. Like, is this really a realistic number? If go prove me wrong, like go repeat it. As a coach, I offer people that opportunity all the time. Right. Go do it again. But this time yeah. I want you to calibrate your power meter after warm-up or sorry, zero offset. That terminology yeah, drives yeah, yeah. me nuts. Thanks, Garmin, <laughs> for butchering that one. But Anyway, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, that was sort of a blah. No, no, no. <laughs> I mean, look, you're, you're you're totally right, and I think some people do do this hygiene to differentiate in their power numbers, uh, which power meter or which bike or something they used. Um, and then you can then you can fetch this differences in power meters, but you still can't fetch the differences between riding up the riding on the flat. These kind of things, right? Mm. So there's no filter for that. 
But your, anal your <coughs> analogy here and the story about what JV would do before you had a power meter, you know, like what I understand what you're indicating is that then benchmarking, this benchmarking riding up the climb and saying, oh, I need more pasta, I need to wear my lucky socks, tomorrow I sleep in, like whatever <laughs> the, you know, the, the, the routine was. Um, you're basically you're indicating that for that, the substitute became a power meter, which is much more, much more accurate, right? Yep. Um, and I would, I would like to, to quickly jump on that because I think there's one thing more that happened in the past years and is still happening and maybe even accelerating or amplifying, uh, which I always say reminds me to what happened when people would start working with lactate values back in the 80s. And hear me out on that one. So what you just said is, JV would go out, write up a climb, use it as a benchmark. And now we would replace it by, you know, writing up the climb as a power meter and be able to compare as a power number, right? Mm -hmm. Now that's all cool because we are talking about benchmarking and understanding, you know, am I maybe a little bit tired and should I back off or whatsoever? And I can totally agree to that. But what I see is happening a lot that people, you know, maybe the wording is not correct, but misuse of power or misunderstand this power number to make an informed decision how to train. You know, like the power that you're measuring up this benchmarking climb is telling you how you're training. It's telling you what is your effort. That is what the power meter does. It tells you and your output, right? It tells you your output, right? It tells you your output. It tells you the outcome. It tells you the result. For example, like in this Friday morning scenario, it tells mm -hmm. you it, it gives you the result of your accumulated fatigue by training the past days or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. And now I feel like people kind of flipped it in terms of, ah, I can use the power to tell me not how I'm training or how I'm doing, but I can use this number to tell me how to train. Mm -hmm. And that's not the same thing, right? If I come to you and say, Colby, you know, my FTP is 300 watts. My five-minute power is whatever, uh, you know, 350 watts. Now give mm -hmm. me a training program. You know, that number, you know, tells you how good I am, but it doesn't provide any information what I should do to in order to improve that. Right. And this is what, you know, I think is currently you know, some people try to do or, or or what people overlook, so to speak, that think, oh yeah, I now do have my power numbers for different time duration, which is basically what the power duration curve is. So I do have some kind of FTP number without going into the details, how accurate it is or what that even means, but yep. like leave yep. that alone, right? It doesn't really matter. The mm -hmm. point is that any of those numbers, any of those benchmarks can, for example, be very successfully be used, like you say, on a, on a weekly routine to understand how fatigued I am to, you know, have a little bit more objectiveness to your, to your sensations, but it's not really giving you information. Like if you should do more intervals or more long, slow mm. distance training. Right. 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 That's like, it doesn't, it, it doesn't give you any information about how you should be training. It just tells you, Hey, this is, this is your benchmark. Yeah. And that's what I see because it's so accessible now powers like you know, when, when i started at t-mobile i would still have to argue people putting a power meter on race like because they didn't weighed want to do three it. pounds back then uh, no well, no well you would still have very light bikes but no because people didn't want to be recorded and monitored and it was no. distracting and it was not needed there's no added value and all and, and anything mm -hmm. um any kind of excuses here um but you know um 
things changed. Power meters got democratized, basically, which is great. But I, as, I, as I indicated, I see a little bit the analogy to in the 80s to lactate testing. You know, like in the late 70s, um, lactate testing came up and the method to do it with just a, a drop of blood was, was developed. And then all different lactate protocols came up. And originally, it was also the idea to use that as a benchmark to understand at that running speed or that power output on a bike, you have a lactate value X, Y, Z. And then it became the one-stop shop, right? It was used to do training zones. It was used to do pacing. It was used and partly still is used in some sports to understand who's going to Olympics or to world championships. It, it was everything, right? It was to monitor progress, uh, everything. And then, well, look where it is now, right? People understand that it's not the one-stop shop to do training zones and... Mm -hmm. And especially in cycling, it's not the one-stop shop that tells you how good a rider is and all these things, right? Yeah. Um, so I'm a little bit afraid that the same happens to, to power, right? People overuse it in a way, you know, <laughs> trying to make something out of it that it proportionally is not um, mm. and uh, therefore lose, lose sight on, on, uh, on you know, how to train. Because mm. essentially, sorry, and then I'm done on the set. Sorry, we could get over long here. But because essentially... Um, on a, on, a, on a high level, you could argue and say, okay, it's a power number that you measure as mechanical power output, right? It's a, it's a mechanical number. It's a, it's a physical number. But what you're trying to change by training is a biological system. So how good is it to use a mechanical number if you want to change biology? Like, you yeah. know what I mean? It's like yeah. it takes the sight and the attention away from what you're actually trying to do. Yes. Very well said. That's an excellent synopsis. So this makes me think of, of many things. Um, but I would love for us to unpack why. Okay, let's go back to our example of uh, 300 watt FTP, yeah. LSS, whatever. And, whatever, yeah. Uh, yeah, and then your best, uh, your VO2 or or your five minute power, we'll say, is is 350. Sorry, use the yeah, terminology there. Yeah. And um, and why does why do those numbers not tell us what we want to know? I mean, you just you just had a an insightful statement in there and that we are trying to use external outputs or measurements, objective uh, quantifications to really influence a biological structure, uh, um, an outcome of metabolism is what we're measuring, but what levers. So we let's take two riders, for example, um, same CDA, same weight, same fat mass, right? For all practical purposes, the same athlete physically, uh, in terms of external resistance, yeah, 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 yeah. resistance tires, right? yes, yep. yeah, yeah, yep. same and bike. same FTP, but right. then and and same VO two, but one athlete has a very high VLA max, and one athlete has a very v low VLA max, and this is I think an easy thought experiment so that our audience can understand how what why we care again, what the insight is, how does it impact training, and also why did the numbers not tell us the full story, just the power numbers alone, why, why they don't tell us the full story. Right. So you, this scenario you just brought up is technically impossible. Like if you have the same FTP and the same VO2 max, yeah. um, then it's, it's impossible. Then the VLA max would have to be very, very close, right? Yes. It would have to be almost the same, right? Depending how, the, even how, if your, how, one your rider, how your body composition is. Even if one rider was highly, highly type one dominant and the other was almost as high as you can imagine type two dominant. 
Well, because then, then the VO2 well, wouldn't be the same, right? Well, you know, going back to what we said, VLA max is a proxy for glycolytic energy production. Glycolytic energy production happens primarily in fast twitch fibers. Right. So it's it's again not to say unlikely, but impossible to have vastly different fiber makeup and and, and identical lactate production. The only, well, right. but our example is one has a really high VLA max okay. and has very low. Right. Okay. Right. Yes. Okay. 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 Cool. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so same okay. VO2 or close enough, but very right. vastly different VLA max. Then you would have vastly different power outputs for like endurance exercises, like MLSS, FDP, lactate threshold, whatever you would you would have. Right. Right. Then you right. would see then you would see significant differences in those values. Mm-hmm. Right. And in this scenario, what you say is the same VO2 max. Um, it's a good point because in this scenario, you could take whatever me- metric you want. You could take whatever FDP or you know 20 minute power or MLSS or lactate threshold. In this scenario, because what you're saying is they have the same aerobic capacity uh, mm-hmm. or same aerobic power to be more precise. They have the same VO2 max, but in sub-maximum conditions like 20 minutes, MLSS, lactate threshold, whatsoever, um, they have different numbers because one is producing more lactate than the other because the one has a stronger glycolytic system, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so yeah, what what happens? What happens in this case and from a practical uh, standpoint is that you know the guy with a with with a lower VLMX will produce less lactate. Lactate is produced out of glucose, so that basically he will have less glucose combustion. You could say less carbohydrate combustion. He will, better, he will have a better fat combustion rate, right? Um, because there is so design per se a lower gross lactate production. Once the guy reaches high lactate concentration by doing hard efforts, doing sprints, attacks, counter attacks, intervals, whatsoever, the ability to recover from that is much faster. Right, mm-hmm. because he has a, you know, at a given if a given aerobic capacity to burn lactate, the per se the gross production is lower compared to our sprinter guy, so to speak. So therefore, um, once lactate has been accumulated, once a guy ran, you know, whatever 10, 15 millimoles of lactate, it's easier to get rid of that compared mm-hmm. to the sprinter guy. So you have better better recovery in between intervals or in a, or in a in a race scenario. So many of these things uh, change, right? So. But- but that athlete also can't attack with as much force because they aren't capable of making as much lactate. Right. 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 So right. Their but are what less is ex- excellent point? What, but what is often overlooked is, especially in cycling race, you're totally right. You're totally right. You take those two guys to a sprint from rest, isolated, whatever Wingate test on a lab, or just after easy warm up out on the road, and your high VLMX guy will sprint tremendously better. Mm-hmm. That, however, does not necessarily mean, and that's often a misunderstanding, that in a bike race, it's the same scenario. Right. Because, because, you're, because you're high anaerobic guy, high glycolytic VLMX, whatever you want to call that, your fast twitch anaerobic guy, you know, could, for example, accumulate more fatigue in a general spoken term uh, in a bike race. Or before the sprint, uh, because his endurance level is not that high, before the sprint, he is more fatigue, you already accumulated lactate, you already depleted creatine phosphate, he's you know, already whatever at, 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 uh, at, at high numbers. Um, especially with repeated sprint ability in a bike race, the guy with the lower VLMX might be better off because he's, simplified speaking, fresher in the race. Mm-hmm. So then 
that is that's a very uh, very likely scenario. Something that I came across uh, many times that people says, "Oh, he's a good sprinter because he can sprint good in a bike race, right?" Yeah. Yeah. Um, like uh, I think you also uh, you you will know Lars Teutenberg, for example, who is now with Kenyan SRAM. He's one yes. of these examples. I mean, his his VLA max is close to nothing, and mm -hmm. he would win criterium races. But not by sprinting, just because, yeah, okay, he was riding efficiently at a low CDA, and he would he would not accelerate after corners because he could not. He was just riding from the front, from the front, yep. but or near the front. But because he was not uh, accumulating fatigue from repeated sprints, right? He could he could out sprint and outperform the sprinter, so to speak, because they are not fresh anymore. Yes, this is um, something I went through in my own career as a rider, uh, when I started to get kind of good on the national level in the U S I was a time trialist, strictly time trialist. And so very dominant by aerobic metabolism and also probably had a dreadfully low VL VLA max. Um, and this was illustrated to me when my first year professional on a, I use professional in air quotes cause it was U S version. Uh -huh. I rode for the Shackley team, uh, which was a continental pro team back then before they even had that distribution. It was just American pro team. I don't know what it called was called. And, and I remember specifically going to a criterium at a stage race we had on the East coast in Fitchburg, which was a pretty big deal at the time. And they had a criterium that was shaped kind of like an almond, um, with right. the top cut off. So the bottom corner was <laughs> okay. like far more acute than 90 degrees. Right. And it was downhill into it and then really narrow streets. Oh, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So like you had to, and then this big jump out of it. And I managed to make my way into the breakaway and, um, this is back in the day when literally I rode on probably 19 or 21 millimeter tires pumped to 125 PSI, like no joke. And how times have changed. Um, <laughs> well, that's mostly because of your track background. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> fair point. <laughs> and I remember coming out of that corner where we had to, you know, fly into the corner and then jam on the brakes and come out of it. And the entire breakaway just would rip me off their wheel every lap. And then I would take yeah. like 50, hundred meters to catch back up, Yes, but yes. then I could catch up and pull through immediately. Yes. And I remember after a half an hour of this being in the break, some of the other guys looking at me after the corner, just with this incredulous expression of like, are you serious? Like how <laughs> slow are you out of this corner? But you're with us yeah. right now. This doesn't make yes. any sense. Yeah. So yeah. this is a, exactly a, that thing. a textbook example of someone who's got a dreadfully low VLA max, yes. but at the same time, I've got presumably pretty good recovery because I wasn't getting dropped out of the break. I could just diesel my way back up. There. Exactly. Yes, exactly. That's what you're Plus so you then, supposedly would have good, have, would have good aerodynamics as well. I was making like, <laughs> I was the guy free. who was super arrow so exactly. I could cheat and recover on the yeah, day. Yeah, so yeah, that yeah. helped yeah. me. Yeah. And yeah. I'm only 62, 61 kilos back then. So I'm tiny and I'm flexible so I can be like nose on the stuff. Very low. Yeah. 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 So fast forward to 1998 and I've changed my training a lot. I worked with a coach, uh, Dave Morris in Colorado Springs. <clears throat> and he Oh, really? Like, you worked yeah. with Dave? Sorry, sorry. I, did. I, didn't know, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if you know where he I, is now I, or what he's up to, but. Uh, no, I've spoken to him maybe 10 years ago last time. Yeah, okay. Yeah. If, yeah. Dave, if you're out there, hit me, hit me on email, man. I'd love to connect. <laughs> uh, haven't spoken to him forever either. And he was a great coach. He taught me a lot. And he had me doing efforts that really pushed my envelope in terms of building VLA max. In fact, one of the efforts he gave me was this interval. He called, he called it a one minute intervals in zone five X. 
And back then right. we used zone five, A, B, and C to be our, our parameters, A being what we would call roughly five minute duration, B being right. roughly one minute maximal duration and C being, you know, 12 to 20 seconds, something like that yeah. neurological. And he called it X. He was like, look, I want you to take completely unlimited recovery. Like if you have to sit on the floor for 20 minutes afterwards, fine. But I want right. you to go as deep as you possibly can. Recovery is unlimited. And the first few times I did the workout, I was, kind of would get the same boring numbers. But then I had this breakthrough where I suddenly went ultra deep. Anyway, it, it, it kind of taught me how far, how much harder I could go in that duration. So I had these breakthroughs and I changed, I, I trained VLA max oriented efforts for the first time in my career. So then I'm on the U.S. circuit racing then for Colorado cyclist and I'm racing NRC crits and I've got all this explosive power. And I probably am a rider who is like you described with Sven. Like I'm not winning the sprints, <clears throat> but I'm making the brakes and I'm driving the brakes and yep. I'm able to do these surgy efforts and I'm exploding out of corners. I've got a lot of good acceleratory ability. I've got a good ability to endure accelerations, multiple accelerations, but I'm still getting beaten to the line. So I'm getting second and third and fifth yeah, yeah, yeah. in these NRC level races. And I'm, and I'm going, okay, how do I win bike races? Because now I'm making the breaks in the criteriums in these explosive events, but I'm not fast enough to, I'm still getting beat by the sprinters. Julian yes. Dean was the man of the era. Right. He won like every race in the U S in 98. And then I realized, duh, points racing because points racing in criteriums, there's only one sprint that we care about. It's the finished sprint. So you race for an right. hour and a half or whatever. But in points racing, you get a dozen sprints. Right. And in the first sprint, sure enough, I would get beat. In the second sprint, I would get beat. But by sprint number three, I found I could go, my, if my first sprint was 100% effort, I could go to 99 in every subsequent sprint and be okay. Yeah. But yeah, most yeah. other riders, the high VLA max riders would kill me in the first two sprints, but then yes. they were fatigued. Don't come back. Yes. And so, sorry for the long-winded explanation, <laughs> but I think this illustrates what you're talking about, which is an athlete who has a strong aerobic metabolism. This is, I think the magic of cycling when it works is the glycolytic metabolism. Again, please correct me if my language is inaccurate or incorrect. The glycolytic metabolism produces a necessary byproduct of that metabolism is lactate and aerobic metabolism when it's well-trained consumes lactate. So when you have a points race and someone's trained aerobically well, as a, as just as a textbook example, or any road race with repeated attacks or criterium, what's happening is the riders generating lactate every time they jump out of a corner and they're using a, a large percentage of the energy is produced by glycolytic metabolism or glycolysis. And so they produce this wave of lactate and the, the, there's a time delay to that. And then it gets into the bloodstream and then it's consumed aerobically during the less intense moments of the race when you're still pedaling, not when you're coasting, right? You always make that right. point when people yes. do intervals, <laughs> yes. if you sit on the curb or stop or coast, then you're not, your aerobic metabolism is not working and you're not consuming it. But I think it's almost this, um, perfect balance when it works well, because if you have an aerobic base, that's well-trained, you can make these giant waves of lactate and then the aerobic system will consume them. And then you're able to perform repeated accelerations like Tabata's or jumps out of criteriums and it all balances out. But if the rider has a poorly trained aerobic base or an insufficient aerobic base of conditioning. And they're also are blessed with a very high VLA max. Then the problem becomes simply that they make, they can go out and throttle themselves into oblivion and make this massive wave of lactate that hits the body, so to speak, 
but they don't have the tools to consume that lactate because their aerobic system can't, there's not a balance there. Right. And so this is a kilo rider or a, a sprinter. Um, a pure sprinter. A pure that's sprinter. A, that's a pure sprinter. Because the race yeah. is just over after a few seconds. You don't have to worry about how you combust that lactate. Right. Nor do you want to because you want to make a bigger wave because you're generating more raw force and therefore more right. power, right? Right. Yeah. 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 No, yeah. that's uh, that's that's pretty much spot on. I mean, don't want to be uh, picky here, but it's not about getting the lactate in the bloodstream and then consume it. So primarily, combustion happens in the working muscle itself, right? In so the muscle. Okay. Yeah. So it basically goes from the fast twitch fibers to the slow twitch fibers where it's combusted, and all of that. What you just mentioned is, you know, inherently every athlete knows that. I mean. You know, if you ask if you ask a runner or a cyclist, you know, you do hard intervals. What do you do between the intervals? You know, do you stop, lay in the grass, or you keep pedaling? Like, mm. you know, like people know that they need to keep pedaling, they need to keep moving, yeah. or in order to, to in give order those to athletes recover. a lot of credit. <laughs> Sometimes, <laughs> but, I'm, but stop. yeah, maybe stop maybe stopping. not move, but not maybe, yes, often. Okay, to be fair, often not moving at the at the best intensity. Okay, right. Um, like often moving in a too low intensity, but really yep. like to stop at all, that's really only something like track sprinters are doing. Mm -hmm. uh, but you're totally right. I always say that, you know, a high VLMX is more fun if you can combine it with a high VO2 max because, mm -hmm. because the lactate is essentially the fuel and that's something that, you know, many people just realized in the past years, maybe the lactate is essentially the fuel for the aerobic metabolism. And it is a preferred fuel because it's, it's, it's very easy and very fast, especially to get lactate into the, as you know, to, to, it's just two steps basically to get lactate into the aerobic metabolism as a fuel. So it is, it is very, very fast. Uh, these two steps don't need any energy as well. So it's, you know, when it's there, it is a preferred fuel. Uh, for the aerobic metabolism. So mm -hmm. it's very, very easy to understand the more aerobic metabolisms you have, you know, the more fuel you can burn and the yeah. more fuel you burn, the more power you have. Mm -hmm. Right. That's, right. that's, that's very, very simple. Right. That's a, that's the same, that's the same, you know, for, for, for everything. Right. When you have a, a supercharged car uh, with whatever a cooling system, you just try to get more oxygen in because more oxygen be means that you can burn more fuel and produce more power. Yep. Right? That's yep. a proportional relationship. Yep. If you don't have aerobic metabolism, you cannot burn anything. That is, as far as we know, true for everything in this universe. No, right? No, 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 no oxygen. No, nothing to oxidize. Right. So more oxygen, more oxidization. More oxidization. Yep. <laughs> So there Very you go. Simple. Base miles are not dead, right? <laughs> not at all. No. You heard it here. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. Okay. Not at all. So maybe we can go back to our two, our athletes who have, we said, similar or identical VO2 maxes, similar CDA, uh, similar fat uh, to lean muscle composition, Yep. And they're riding side by side for, we'll say long duration, five hours. And it's yeah. sub, so it's a, it's a normal endurance pace ride, whatever you call it, zone two or aerobic yeah, endurance. whatever. Yeah. And so we have our, our low VLA max guy, which we can just put a number on it just so people understand in practical terms. Maybe it's 0.3, which is, would be typical of a stage racer, right. Yeah. Or, a, yeah. and then our sprinter will, will put him pretty high or her pretty high. Um, maybe 0.8. Well, that's a question actually, are, do we have similar VLA max, uh, 
um, in numbers in females. No, it's a little bit lower. It's a little bit lower. So it uh, correspond to VO2 roughly. Yeah. Also, there's okay. less muscle mass and then you get a little bit yeah. less overall. Um, depends on the body makeup, but in general, it's a little bit lower. And also, and also there are studies that show that in general, in average, um, of course, there you know, can be talented athletes, but in general, you get less glycolytic fibers and less uh, anaerobic glycolytic enzymes in females. Which makes sense, right? I've seen some studies that show that you know, over a long enough duration of exercise, women are predicted and there's debate better. about whether yes. they will be better yes. than men. Right. Yes. And yes, exactly. I mean, that makes perfect sense. Like women, yes. same story. Yeah. Same story. The men are the yeah. hunters. We need more glycolytic fibers to go battle a, an <laughs> ox or whatever we're hunting. And women are the people who, uh, tribally speaking, I'm not trying to ruffle anyone's feathers yeah, yeah, yeah. here, but would stay home and do things all day long and keep the camp running. Right. So they're going, right. going, going. That's yeah, more. Yeah. 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 Uh, more endurance oriented, not so much sprinting whatsoever. Yes. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. So our riders are riding next to each other and we've got our 0.3, our low VLA max and our, our 0.8, our higher VLA max riders. The implications are because even though the intensity is lower, it's all submaximal. It's well below threshold for this ride. The glycolytic, the highly glycolytic rider is by definition burning more sugars. I think this is also a a concept that is important to illustrate that even though the riders are not doing maximal efforts at any given moment, there's always contributions from both energy systems. Yes. So the rider who is, even though they're the same weight and the same arrow drag, they're burning more sugars on that ride. So they need to consume more sugars to keep up energy supply, unless the, the prescription of the training is to intentionally deplete them of glycogen or have them run in a more glycogen depleted but state. But then still, yeah, but then still there's, there's a high VLMX guy burns significantly more carbohydrates. More carbohydrates, right. Right. Significantly right. more. Uh, yeah. because 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 in your scenario they're going the same speed, so they're going the same power. Mm-hmm. But so because you said they have the same, so you're not you need to follow me a little bit with the mass here, but because you're saying they have the same view to max, if they write the same power, they have very similar percentage utilization so they're right in a very not exactly the same but in a, in a similar percentage of the vo2 max right yeah right because you say it's same cda same rolling systems they're right next to each other yep. you're saying they have the same power but so because the vo2 max is the same the percentage they're utilizing of the vo2 max is not exactly the same for both but very very similar but one guy the low vla max has a higher threshold he has a higher you know intensity at fat max mm-hmm. and so this guy is maybe riding at, and that's this is why it's a perfect example. So let's let's put a number behind it. Let's say they ride both at fifty percent of the VO two max. Okay, they're utilizing fifty percent of the maximum aerobic power capacity. If you're more happy with that, um, the low VLMX guy is then riding maybe at seventy percent of threshold, and the other guy is riding, you know, let's say at ninety percent of threshold. Just mm-hmm. to say something, right? So, and this is, you know, taking back to inside, by the way, something you can find in our training zone builder where you can see now what, what would this mean is that you could say, simplifying saying the aerobic load, the aerobic load in both athletes is the same, right? Because they're both oversimplifying things a little bit, utilizing 50% of the VO2 max while they're riding. Mm-hmm. But percentage-wise to the anaerobic threshold, one is at 70%, one is at 90%. And now in this example, that's fine because if you say, yeah, I want this is an aerobic training, they're both riding at you know um, 
50% of the VO2 max, and I just need to feed more carbohydrates into the into the uh, into the high VLMX guy. But the reality, I would argue, for most people out there is that you don't prescribe an aerobic training as a percentage of VO2 max. You're mm -hmm. prescribing a training in most cases as a percentage of whatever kind of threshold value. Right. So now what would happen is because the high VLMX guy has a lower threshold, right? And you're prescribing, let's say, at 70% of threshold, typical number for aerobic-based mm -hmm. training. Yep. Um, now, first, I cannot ride together because, you know, the high VLMX has a lower threshold. So he's riding a lower power. And because they have the same resistance, he's riding slower. Yep. Okay. Mm -hmm. He's he's riding slower. And that's and then you say, oh, that's cool because now I've individualized my training. I found out the one that needs to ride slower. But the problem is they're both riding at 70% of your 2 max. And for the, uh, sorry, 70% of threshold or FTP or whatever you choose. And your low VL VLMX guy is utilizing in this case, maybe 60% of his VO2 max. Mm -hmm. So the strain on his aerobic system, again, thinking about biological system, his strain on the aerobic, his training stimulus on the aerobic system is 60% of his maximum. And the high VLMX, the glycolytic anaerobic guy is maybe only at 35 or 40%. Mm. So now what happens, what you can argue is if you stick to any idea on how we prescribe training intensity and training load, going back to your gym example, whatever, doing X, X percent of one repetition maximum, right? Um, now what happens is the aerobic guy has a much greater aerobic stimulus and the anaerobic guy has a much lower aerobic stimulus. Right. So, which is kind of the opposite of what he probably needs. Exactly. Right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right. So it's like being in an echo chamber, so to speak. Right. Like the aerobic <laughs> guy, the low, the low anaerobic guy, he is work. He is improving a lot on his aerobic system, yeah. and and the anaerobic guy who is trying to improve his aerobic system is not doing that good of a job in that whatever three four hour ride, so to speak, because his utilization of his aerobic system is much much lower, mm -hmm. and. This is very simply speaking, in this example, we're talking about increasing your aerobic capacity. But we, in this case, we didn't prescribe training intensity based on that metric, right? Mm -hmm. we, in this case, we prescribe training intensity as a function of FTP, FTP. In, instead right. of VO2 max. And this is what I always say is like, you go to the gym and you want to prescribe, you know, number of repetition and weight for squatting. You would use the one repetition maximum of squatting and not of Russian deadlift. Right, right. But this or, is essentially what you're doing. If you, yeah, well, bench press. If you are trying to increase your VO2 max, then why the heck don't prescribe training as a function of VO2 max? Mm -hmm. and, into, and ironically, if you look at any scientific paper about aerobic training, I would say 90% is prescribing it as, it's a, it's a standard. Like you can almost not get it published if you're not prescribing training intensity as a function of VO2 max. That's so all, just, the knowledge, yeah. all the knowledge out there about how training works is related to, hey, training intensity related to VO2 max. Yeah. Especially in cycling, not so much in other sports, right? Again, just yesterday I came back from German Skiing Federation, their prescribed training, you know, training zones, for example, as part of that, as percent of, of VO2 max. Mm. That's not a thing in cycling, right? People in cycling prescribe often as a percentage of FDP and how much trigger or stimulus is on the aerobic system, which is very likely what you're actually trying to change or trying yep. to improve, yep. differs between those athletes. It's a, Greatly. Huge, it's a huge shortcoming, actually. 
Interesting. So, okay. And so we can unpack a little bit about the why. I think maybe I have an analogy that you'll agree is hopefully useful for people. The other, the other analogous situation is that right now, everyone is so focused on watts per kilogram. And why is this? Well, I think there's several reasons. One is Zwift displays watts per kilo on the screen all the time. Right. Yeah. And so many people are Zwifting, especially with the pandemic. So many people retreated to their, their yeah, man yeah. and woman caves and Zwifted themselves to death, which has a whole pile of implications and ramifications that um, complicate things. But the other is that watts per kilo is really easy. Anyone with a scale and a power meter can know what yeah. their watts per kilo is. Yes. But what it, what determines more frequently the outcome of bike races, it's watts per kilo and watts per gram of drag. These two together are what make the result in the, when we're looking through the performance of an athlete from a very physics-based perspective, it's like, how much power are you making? And what is the resistance on a, in a vacuum on a hill with yes. watts per, yeah. per kilo, but in every other situation, CDA plays a role in outcome, even when yes. you're in the Peloton, et cetera, et cetera. And on most climbs, of course, it plays some role. It's just a question of how much of a role it plays. But no one thinks about this, or not no one, but commonly, we don't think about this because most people have no idea what their CDA is. Like, yeah, there are riders who do know their yeah. CDA. They've been to the wind tunnel, or maybe they have one of the devices you put on your handlebars that shows you live CDA, which I've played with, and they're a huge pain in the ass, I got to say. Um, but cool invention nonetheless, or maybe they've gone to a velodrome and done testing with a wasp device. And, you know, yeah, there's, yeah. there's different ways you can figure out your CDA. Of course, you can use a chunk test if you're really um, kind of nerding out on the numbers. There, there are ways to figure it out, but most people don't do that. Most right. people just are like, oh, that's messy. I don't know what CDA is. What if I wear the wrong jersey or what if I'm in the drops or the hoods or whatever that changes everything? Because there's a lot of variability in it. But the reality is CDA plays a huge role in the outcome of the speed of a cyclist. I mean, massive, yes. right? As does watts per kilo. But the easy metric to focus on is watts per kilo. And the easy metric to focus on is, I would argue, is, is even VO2 max. Because VO2 max is easily easy to calculate. Now, using inside, both VO2 max and VLA max are easy if to calculate. it's easy, okay. I, would, I would argue if it's easy to okay, calculate. Okay, VO2 okay max fair, whatever, but... fair point. Yeah. Um, but I guess my, I guess what I'm trying to say is I think CDA is more analogous to VLA max. It's a bit more unknown and misunderstood. Do you think that's a fair comparison? Uh, yes, equation? I would say, yeah, I would say kind of, I was more thinking that, um, in general, a little bit CDA is, I would even say it's also like VO2 max, uh, but I'm a little bit biased here. Uh, from the scientific world because what you know because you know three weeks ago or two weeks i can't remember i was at the science and cycling conference this is always this you know conference before the tour de france and as mm. the name tells you indicates it's it's about uh, you know uh, cycling only and it's you know it's it's interesting to, to phrase it this way that really a huge chunk of the research is just around any form of joules and seconds because all your power and w prime or whatever is just one form of energy and time right mm -hmm. power is energy divided by time and then multiplied again you have the energy and blah 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 so that's all, all it is and i think it's it's also because it's so easy to access similar to your watts per kilogram right like mm -hmm. cda is more difficult to access 
even like even you you're right you can access it uh in one way or the other but to have a good grip on it an accurate grip it's not that easy mm-hmm. and for sure even that there are accessible ways it is you know it's not as easy as just putting your uh, standing on a scale and getting getting your kilograms right mm-hmm. it is it is it is still not as easy and because of that you know people tend to to take the the you know the path of 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 least resistance um and therefore what's per kilogram is easy and it's unfortunately a little bit the same what you see a lot in you know publications around cycling you know you can say like a VO2 max or VLA max or I could even say whatever uh, access to a lab uh, to measure things uh, hook somebody up to a metabolic car take muscle biopsies whatsoever the more sophisticated your numbers are the more interesting it gave me maybe gets or the more important like with a CDA or you could argue muscle fiber distribution is very important in you know understanding how to train mm-hmm. uh, but it but it's but it's difficult to access it right because number of labs is limited and then how many people can get into the lab so it's limited access while on the other hand access to a power meter in any kind of form right i mean even a kicker or some other kind of you know indoor trainer or stages power meter mm-hmm. you know everybody can get hands on and on a scale and then you know base a training on it or where i'm coming from a little bit biased because of the experience two three weeks ago run some kind of research project so to speak just using joules and seconds and everything any 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 form about it yeah because it's 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 it is accessible and it's easier to do mm-hmm. and that's i think is the same for the watts per kilogram right mm-hmm. if the cda would be uh, easier to access uh on a regular basis uh, for everybody um it would be great because as you said it is a much much more important number mm. right um, yeah i mean of course in time trying but also also in road racing Okay, cycle knots. This is the end. But fear not. It's not the end end. It's just the end of part one of our conversation with Sebastian. This pod took a while. We broke out into about two hours of total duration. And so we decided it would be best to cleave this episode into two equal parts. Well, approximately equal. I'll leave it up to my trusty editor to decide exactly where the cleaving happens but he always proceeds with great wisdom. So we've been cleaved. We'll see you in a few days for part two. Thanks for listening. Epilogue. I want to share a few brief thoughts about the inception of cycling and alignment. The purpose of this podcast is for me to get three and a half decades of hard fought lessons out of my skull. Some of them through my own research and reading, some of them I've been taught through mentors and colleagues, other riders, other racers. A lot of it, a massive amount of it was simply trial and error through my own stubborn methods. And that has amassed a certain amount of experience and knowledge, understanding. And while I think I'm reasonably smart and I know quite a bit of stuff, I want to make it clear that The opinions that I share on this podcast are belief systems built on what I've experienced to this point. And some of those opinions are pretty strong, but they are also loosely held. That is to say that if I learn more about a topic and have a greater level of clarity or understanding, 
then my old belief systems will be abandoned and I will now operate under that newfound knowledge. So I'm not here to tell people all the things that I know. I'm here to explain what I've learned to this point. And there's a big difference. Also, that is the intent when I discuss things on the pod with guests is to learn from them and have a discourse. Because if we can't have a discourse as adults, then we've lost one of the basic tenets of modern society. Even if we disagree, we ought to be able to, in most cases, shake hands and walk away. Because after all, this is sport we're talking about. And while sport is training for life, it's nothing to get too upset over. The purpose of the podcast is to help me help other people and specifically to help them actualize their highest potential by illuminating a path that enables alignment with their truth, their intent, and their coherence. That's really the end goal. So I'm grateful for your listening. My intent is also not to be clear to gain an audience or become popular or gain social status in any way. I don't care about that stuff. That said, if you feel an episode that you have heard will help someone you know, please share it with them. That helps us reach the end goal, which is to help more people. Thank you for listening. I'm grateful for your time and attention. Blessings. Blessings.